These are people that are used to playing on Bourbon Street. These are people that are incredibly talented and keeping the real deal stuff alive. And who brings up the younger kids if you don't hear the elders? That is the executive director of the Jazz Foundation of America and 2016 NEA Jazz Master, Wendy Oxenhorn. And this is Artworks, the weekly podcast produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. I'm Josephine Reed. Wendy Oxenhorn is a soft-spoken force of nature. Trained as a dancer, she turned a career-ending injury into a lifetime of helping other people. Wendy was co-creator of a number of nonprofits, including Street News, the first newspaper ever created to be sold by homeless people. She also learned to play a mean harmonica, and she self-identifies as a bluesman. All of this led to a job at the Jazz Foundation of America, whose mission is to provide jazz and blues musicians with financial, medical, housing, and legal assistance, as well as to create performance opportunities for them. When Wendy Oxenhorn began working there in the year 2000, the JFA had a minuscule budget and a local focus in New York City. By 2005, due in large part to the work of Wendy, the foundation, now with a full-time staff, expanded its outreach throughout the country. Since 2001, Wendy Oxenhorn has raised more than $30 million through events like the now annual concert, A Great Night in Harlem. Her fundraising efforts has enabled the JFA to increase the organization's capacity to provide emergency assistance to more than 5,000 cases annually. The JFA was pivotal in helping musicians in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina, finding housing, creating employment opportunities, and replacing instruments for more than 1,000 displaced musicians. Wendy Oxenhorn created the Agnes Varis Jazz in the Schools program, which enables hundreds of musicians to perform blues and jazz for more than 80,000 public school students each year. As you can tell, the woman is non-stop, a creative and fierce advocate for musicians, which is why Wendy Oxenhorn can now add 2016 NEA Jazz Master to her list of honors. Like all of us, Wendy's path is hardly a straight line. Here she is remembering back to when she was 17 and, by happenstance, found a new life outside of dance. They said I'd be crippled by the time I was 30 if I continued. So that was that was devastating, and I was a pretty traumatic kid. I remember just thinking that there's no reason to live anymore, and I called up a suicide hotline because I just was that that low. And the woman on the other end of the line was in her 50s, and she just started telling me her troubles, you know. And most people used to. I even had cab drivers. It was like confession every time I'd get in a taxi. And she started telling me her troubles, and and I started counseling her. And three days later, I was working at the hotline. It was wonderful. It was the cure for all my depression because I completely got lost in people's problems, and I didn't have time to think about my own. And that's what started this whole next half of my life. Odyssey. (laughs) You worked at the Suicide Hotline, and you did a number of nonprofits that you created. Children in Need, Street News, Children of Substance. Were you able to support yourself working at these organizations? (laughs) I know you're a single mom. New York, it's crazy now, but it's always been expensive. 
I have a joke. I wrote a book, and the joke was the title was going to be, you can have a big life, too, on $8 a day. But, yeah, no, single parenting in New York City is hard. And running charities, what I did was I I ran a boarding house out of my apartment, and that's how I got the rent paid, so I was able to do and start these smaller charities. I didn't do anything alone. You know, you always have wonderful people, you know. Before you ended up at the Jazz Foundation of America, you had an interesting time on the subways of New York City. How did you find the blues? Oh, ah, I like to think the blues found me. I was bit by the blues from the time I was a kid. And then there used to be this man who played in the subway that I would always stop and listen to. And he would always call to me and say, come on, blues lady, you know, come and sing. And I believe me, I cannot sing. <laughs> and this is you as grown-up Wendy. Yes, this is me with the uh, kid in the stroller. And so what happened was I had a love affair with this incredible Italian composer and singer. That ended tragically, of course, because, you know, it was an Italian composer. What do you think would happen? But one day during my, my Italian love affair, he had a harmonica sitting there. And he was making some pasta because he was really from Italy. And I picked up the harmonica and Sugar Blue was um, on a CD playing Little Red Rooster. And it happened to be the right key. And I just started fiddling around. And he turned around, you know, and he was like, baby, you got something. And I was like... You know, I don't know what I had. You know, at first I was terrible. But I had that feeling in me, just like the ballet, just like dance. And I lit up like a kid at Christmas. And I took it home with me. And, of course, you know, it got tragic after that. So everything went into my harmonica. And the blues became very appropriate. Well, well, <laughs> this is so amazing how life is. You know, every time something just like with the dance. Look what happened. My life turned around. And then just like with the Italian composer and Big Love, you know, going to hell, I had this beautiful gift come from it that, to be honest with you, the blues meant more to me than anything at that moment. How did, how did you learn the harp? Did you, did you play along with other CDs? I would get on the express trains at 96th Street on the number three. I would get between the cars and I'd have muddy waters in my head on an iPod. And I would just start playing. I'd hold on to the handle between the cars with one hand. And because between the cars, no one can hear you. So you're whizzing down. And I would play my heart out. And then I would cross the platform and go back. And I would do it for about three hours a day. Could you hear yourself? Oh, gosh, no. Oh, but mm -hmm. at least no one else could. Good thing. <laughs> but I was able to, you know, feel it. And then late at night when the kids were asleep and a roommate was home... I would go to the platform at 103rd Street and Broadway because the acoustics were amazing. You didn't need amplification. And I would play my heart out there after 11, 11.30 when I wasn't disturbing anyone. You know, I'd go by the tunnel, by the entrance, and just stand on the last part of the platform and play my heart out. And then one day that same old blues man from Mississippi was there, and I looked at and him. And that's Floyd Lee. Floyd Lee, formerly known as Ted Williams. And I flashed my harmonica to him. And he came over and he laughed and he hit his leg and said, we are going to make good gobs of money. And all he meant was there was going to be a little blonde in a dress that could go get the tip bucket. That's really what he meant. And so I never learned to play whole songs and I never played filler. I'd take my solo and then I'd go get the money. <laughs> <laughs> ¶¶ 
we did pretty well. I bet. We did. <laughs> it wasn't my start of fundraising, but it, it didn't hurt it. <laughs> and can you think about what you learned from him musically? Oh, he was so real deal. Playing in the train stations probably was the greatest, the greatest master class I could ever get because it wasn't about perfection. There were all sorts of things that would happen, and you just would go with it because it was blues. You'd make enough money. I remember I recorded us in the train station, and it was the first real CD he had of his live music, his what he really does. And we were making like 200 bucks a piece at rush hour. I'd be home in time to feed the kids. I taught them to count on the money. You know, I, they thought we were rich. It was so wonderful. Mama would come home with all these $1 bills. And then, um, <laughs> and I wouldn't have to pay babysitter for any late night clubs, you know. I, I have so many funny memories. Discretion doesn't allow me to, to, <laughs> <I'm sure>. to <laughs> say. <laughs> what happened to the subway gig? I was kicked out of the band. What happened? He got himself a girlfriend who just didn't want another woman in the band. So it was really the blues. There was a there was a, our one blues moment where, you know, I was like, I think she's going to cut me. <laughs> and he said, baby, you've got to go. <laughs> and and But that's how I found this job. So should I segue yeah, into I, that? I really want that segue. It's a great story. Okay. You know, I was I was sitting at a cafe again, depressed as hell. <laughs> but I didn't call suicide hotlines anymore. Now I just would play play the blues, and a friend walked by who had seen me playing in the subway station, and she knew my charitable past. And um, she said, "You know, I saw this ad for this foundation that takes care of." old jazz musicians who've fallen on hard times. And I called them up. And when I told them my history, when I told them I played harmonica in the train station with an old man from Mississippi, he got up and he shook my hand. He said, you've got the job. And later I found out I was the only one who showed up for the job. How's that for miraculous? I think it's the way life works, actually. And it never would have happened had I stayed playing with with my beautiful old man from Mississippi. Wendy, a little bit about the Jazz Foundation of America, if you yes. don't mind. When you started, it was really more of a local organization. I think it's pretty fair to say. And everybody working as hard as they can, but how many people were they able to help and what was the budget like? Well, it was this wonderful older man, Herb Storfer, who had really formed the Jazz Foundation with Ann Rucker, Phoebe Jacobs, Billy Taylor, um, Cy Blank. And, of course, then Jimmy Owens of Vishnu Wood and um, Jamil Nasser came to them and said, hey, there are musicians out there. They're in trouble. And that's when they changed the focus. And what made had it. been the focus? It had just been to promote and keep jazz alive. And then it really began. And then, of course, Dr. Frank Forty and the Englewood Hospital that um, took care of Dizzy and started treating musicians for free. That doesn't come along every day. That, that man's a saint. It was really Herb Storfer in his apartment pulling money out of his pocket and helping. And he would give him a couple of months' rent. And it was helping about 35 musicians a year. Wendy, how did you grow the organization? You know, I'm just a good workaholic, that's all. <laughs> and, you know, I came in and then this amazing young woman who had just graduated from Vassar, Lauren, and she was like 10 men rolled up in one. She came uh, a year after I started, and together we really built it up. And now we have this amazing staff. We also got um, my second year there, we got 
uh, Jarrett Lillian, who was it was he was not the president of E Trade yet. He was just this amazingly good-hearted man who was on his way up somewhere. When we asked who had money, you know, they told me they said, "Well, there's this guy we know named Jarrett Lillian." Because, you know, we had $7,000 in the bank. Did I forget to mention that? You know, they offered me this great job and then told me we had 7000 in the bank. So I started for free. And then I met Jared and recruited him onto the board. And he had wanted to be on the board. He was wonderful. And then I met Dick Parsons. That's another amazing story. He was CEO of Time Warner at the time. And I think he was their first African-American CEO. And everyone said, he loves jazz. you got to get this guy. So I wrote to him. And as I was writing the letter, Lauren came in with a letter for me, and it was from him. And there was a check in it, and he had read some article in the New York Times that had been published about us, and he said, I want to help. And he became our interim chairman. I knew he was busy, so I asked him to be our interim chairman, and he's been that for 11 years now. (laughs) Let's talk about some of the reasons jazz musicians end up in need, and and I know for the most part, we're not talking about established artists, it's sidemen, it's it's pickup musicians. I know finding work can be hard, but then you do, and, you know, the hours are long, touring is difficult. The road is brutal. The road is truly brutal. And when you look at some of these musicians who have been doing it for 30, 40, 50 years, it wears you down. It wears you down. And um, this business really doesn't take care of the music makers. You know, it never really has. In most cases, you know, as far as pay, all all these great old um, legends that did recordings, even with Frank Sinatra, you would get that one-time buyout for the album. You know, your your day of recording, you get 300, you figured that's great, you'll pay the rent. And then you would never get any royalty. The record could sell millions and you never got anything further. Usually only the band leader got a royalty. They don't have control over their music. Exactly. Or intellectual property, for that matter. I know so many people who wrote songs or co-wrote songs, and other people took the publishing. You know, a producer took the publishing, a manager took the publishing, and then they'd end up with nothing. I mean, talking household famous songs, things that made the Rolling Stones famous, or, you know, we've we've had lots of that. And I'll give a, a good example. One of my favorite people in the world was uh, Jimmy Norman. And Jimmy Norman used to run Sweetwaters back in the day with Chet Baker and everyone playing there. Everyone came through there. He was also one of the coasters for 30 years. He was also Bob Marley's first producer and helped Bob Marley to become Bob Marley. He was the first one making his first breakout album, and he wrote um, some of the first songs with him. He never benefited from that. He also co-wrote Time Is On My Side, which made the Rolling Stones famous. And in the beginning, he was credited, but his partner was the one who took the publishing, and he never saw a minute of that. And when he was in his 70s after a triple bypass, he couldn't tour with the coasters anymore. And uh, we found out that he was about to be evicted. And I went to court with him and the lawyer for the landlord when I told him who this guy is. He goes, I love the Rolling Stones. I love Bob Marley. He said, we can't let this happen. So we got him out of that. And then um, I had gotten a couple of young musicians. We always partner young musicians with the elders because beautiful things blossom from that. And these great relationships blossomed, and he ended up helping all these kids with their recordings. But while we were cleaning his apartment, we found a cassette of him and Bob Marley 
in his apartment in the Bronx in the 70s, recording tunes and writing tunes that had never been heard, never saw the light of day. So it ended up selling through a friend of his, Frank Beecham, it ended up selling at Christie's. Of course, we made him pay the rent for the next two years. <laughs> and then he got himself an editing suite, and he made his own version of Time is on My Side. Judy Collins picked it up. He got a huge breakout article in the Times explaining his story. It was wonderful. Tell me what went into your thinking about creating the program Jazz in the Schools. A brilliant, creative, and just obvious idea all at the same time. It's so important that when we have this moment to help someone, that we think of the most creative solutions that are dignified. You know, Jazz in the Schools program and Blues in the Schools that allow everyone to perform for the kids. They're too maybe too old or too ill to go on tour anymore or to handle a three-hour gig at a club, but they can do a 45-minute concert for the kids, and the kids run up and ask for autographs, and they've got a reason to get out of the house again. They're loved again, and they also get paid so they can pay their own rent. You know, these are the kinds of solutions we try to work on the most. And how many kids, it's the first time they've ever heard a live performance. I'm so glad you brought that up because that's hard to believe, but kids don't hear live music anymore. They watch it on YouTube or they hear it in headphones. And that's the other point to bring up that is is so important, that now that we are all on these devices, our lives are becoming very isolated. You used to go out hear music. You know, you would you would meet people. You would have that connection. You would have that fabulous feeling of excitement. And you'd be moved by the music. And we were all in this together. There's something about that community, a group of people coming together to hear a performance that is, I think, very magical. Completely. In some ways, it's almost like our secular church. It is. That's what we call it. When you are there, things happen. There is this spiritual connection that happens between people. And when you watch it on the tube or on the computer, it's just not the same. So it's a great point you make. And that's the problem because live music now, the clubs can't sustain themselves. And as a result, there's not a whole lot of pay that's happening. Someone had said to me that they were starting these spaces in Brooklyn and I'm, I'm sure now they're not even affordable, but musicians would come and they would just hang in these spaces and just to be able to create because the gigs weren't happening. The paying gigs, the clubs weren't happening. So people might have been stuck at home rehearsing, practicing, trying to create, but without the juice of the other people, without the magic, it's not the same. No. And you can't be brought up. Your own level can't be brought up. I was lucky enough to find that that great older blues man in the in the subway station, who was able to bring me up. You are marvelous in many ways, but part of it is the connections you make with people, both within the jazz community, but outside the jazz community. And that outreach is something you've done throughout your entire career working for nonprofits. No, well, I'm just lucky. I'm telling you, it's just luck. You know why? When you do what you say you do, the money follows and the way opens. I mean, for example, when Katrina happened, look how that fell into place. Oh, I wrote to this woman, Agnes Varis, and invited her to this affair we were having with Dick Parsons, and she said yes. And that night, I said to her, you know, with what happened in Katrina, there are over a 1,000 musicians that 
are displaced to 38 states. They have no way to get back home. They have no way to pay new rents. The landlords won't even take them because they have no check stubs from Bourbon Street. They have no way to prove they had an income. So if we could put them to work in the schools, and uh, she said, write me a letter. And I wrote her a letter, and the next day she gave us a quarter of a million dollars, and we started putting musicians right away to work. Because of Jarrett and E-Trade, we were able to house people right away and get them into homes paying first month's rent and security. We were working about 20 hours a day at that point, you know, and we just started helping people. When you started at the Jazz Foundation of America, what do you think the biggest need jazz musicians had? And has it shifted at all as as the foundation has done more work? Well, I noticed that 9-11 hurt the club scene in a lot of ways. There used to be a big restaurant scene. And you started in the year 2000, just yes. so we have our history straight. Yes, yeah. yes. So it was a year later. There was a big restaurant scene, and they would always pay musicians 50 bucks, 75 bucks per musician to play in the restaurant. And when 9-11 happened, the restaurants all closed down. No one was going out. People couldn't stay open, and they certainly couldn't afford to have music because no one was going out for a few months. And what was happening was... The older musicians said, hey, we've been with you for years. We understand now. We know what it's like. We'll just pass the basket. And a lot of places didn't want to go back to paying after that. When the business picked up. When the business picked up again. And that's still the case. Very few places pay like they used to. So that really hurt. Yeah, and as you said, jazz clubs aren't doing that well either. I know so many genuinely jazz music-loving club owners, where they're not making a dime and they keep it alive. I know so many wonderful small clubs that truly sacrifice their lives for this. You know, I watch it all the time. And the rents are so high. Oh, it's insane. You know, but again, people are not going out to hear music like they used to. And this is the only thing that would make the difference. But, you know, you have to accept life on life's terms. And, you know, this is the way it is. So, you know, like Quincy says, we have to come up with other ways to make money off of intellectual property on the Internet. You have to change with the times. You can't wish for it to be the way it was. But I've heard a lot of musicians are moving out to Detroit, that it's becoming quite a scene and it's uh, quite inexpensive. There are things that are happening out there, you know. Wendy, one thing you did about a year after you started was a big concert at the Apollo called A Great Night in Harlem, which has now become (laughs) a yearly event. What did you have in mind? Had you ever produced anything remotely like that? (laughs) And how did you pay for it? Okay. Like I said, I'm a lucky girl, you know, and determination is a beautiful thing. Uh, So I was trying to learn more about jazz because I really knew nothing, okay? I mean, like, really nothing. So I rented the DVD for A Great Day in Harlem because I thought that had all the jazz greats. I'll learn something. And while I was watching it, I thought to myself, wouldn't it be wonderful to have all the current jazz greats, all these legends, and have a great night in Harlem? And where else but at the Apollo? So at the time, the Apollo rent was like 15000 So I went to our amazing E-Trade man, Jared Lillian. I said, look, it's 15000 to rent it. I think we can do this. And... He said, okay, I got your back. So the board members, they all wanted it to happen, but we didn't believe we could ever get 15000 in those days. You know, I was just starting out, and we had very little money. You had $7,000. Yes. So I just started putting the word out. 
And it was just musician after musician started saying yes. And I said, could you bring someone to the table? We had Hank Jones. We had Ahmad Jamal. We had Joanne Brackeen. We had Ron Carter. I mean, we just had just about everyone. I think it was 100 people. Abby Lincoln. I mean, Freddie Hubbard. But it was just everyone you can think of. And they all came out, and it happened in nine weeks. And we did take a picture on stage that we called A Great Night in Harlem with everybody. And John Abbott took that. And it was beautiful. But basically, that's how it happened. And it happened 13 days after 9-11. That was my next question. 13 days after 9-11, and the house was packed. There wasn't an empty seat in the house. And we made 350000 without a dinner, you know, just the concert. And that is what got us rolling. And we started helping 300 musicians a year. Then we started helping 500 musicians a year. We now had a part-time social worker. It just grew from there. It was very beautiful. How many musicians a year would you say the Jazz Foundation helps? I don't know a year, but I know this. I know we average about 25 to 30 individual cases a day. We also do 5,000 or 6,000 emergency assists a year all over the country and sometimes even around the world now. Wendy, I want you to make one wish, one big wish, for the Jazz Foundation. (laughs) For any billionaire who is out there, our biggest dream, and I mean this really with my heart, is to build a player's residence. Because these people are aging out in basement apartments, rent-controlled apartments, alone, and an apartment building. You know, even if it was for a hundred people or fifty people, and they had each other, and the buses of tourists would come by once a night. There would be jams every night, and they just would be with each other, and there would be social workers, and then there would be a floor for when you need assisted living so you don't go to the state-run nursing home. My goodness, when when Odetta fell and broke her hip and she was at a nursing home with someone screaming all night next to her, I mean, this is just should not be for people who have given us this much joy and made the world this beautiful. They should have their own place. So I'm just putting that out there with a little passion to anyone who might be able to contribute towards something like that. It's wendy at jazzfoundation.org is the email. (laughs) Wendy, thank you for giving me your time, which I know you have precious little of. I do want to shout out to the NEA for this moment because I have to tell you, and it makes me want to cry, but, you know, I have not stopped since I took the job. And you don't get a chance to really look back or take anything in. You're always on to the next emergency. So I just want to thank them for this opportunity to shed some light on the work we do and the need out there for these great people who took us through our lives. These people, they played and the background of everything we've done in our own little movies every day. And it's such an honor and a privilege to be able to help them in their times of darkness, you know. They represent freedom to me. They're the freedom fighters of this world. I think we're all so lucky that you're doing what you do. Well, I don't do it alone. It's a we. It's a we, (laughs) like jazz. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. That was 2016 NEA Jazzmaster and Executive Director of the Jazz Foundation of America, Wendy Oxenhorn. We're ending with the song, Poor Wayfaring Stranger, sung by Tana Jarrow at Wendy's request. Wendy plays it when one of the jazz musicians passes, 
because it allows her to experience their spirit being guided back home. I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening.